Hey there, and welcome to a very special short round episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Clustercus Gallagher. Since Hunter is off flying covert missions in an undisclosed location this week, I am joined today by my wingman, Jacob Madman Graves. Welcome, Jake. Hey, Chris. More than happy to be here to review Diary of a Mad Black Woman with you. Uh, that's not what we're doing this week. It's uh, Top Gun, Jake. Um. Oh, well, uh, I've, I've seen that, I guess... I guess I'll do that. It doesn't have Matt in the title, though. Yeah, I know. We're breaking the rules, but uh, what are you going to do? And, you know, we were supposed to be joined by Joey Big Show Dale, uh, but unfortunately, he bugged out after a close encounter with a MiG-28. hate to see that happen. Uh, As I said, this is a short round episode, so we'll jump straight into the review and then wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. So, uh, Jake, I assume you received the dress code memo. Uh, Blue jeans? Check. No shirt of any kind? I never wear a shirt. Great. Optional mustache. Uh, I think that, I think that's just you. Great. We're good to go. The hard deck on this hop is 10,000 feet. There will be no engagement below that. Understood? Aye, aye. Let's move out. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. You've been busted. You lost your qualifications as section leader three times. Put in hack twice by me. With a history of high-speed passes over five air-controlled towers and one admiral's daughter. Penny Benjamin. And you, asshole, you're lucky to be here. Thank you, sir. And let's not bullshit, Maverick. Your family name ain't the best in the Navy. You need to be doing it better and cleaner than the other guy. Now, what is it with you? Just want to serve my country. Be the best fighter pilot in Navy, sir. Don't screw around with me, Maverick. You're a hell of an instinctive pilot. Maybe too good. I'd like to bust your butt, but I can't. I got another problem here. I gotta send somebody from this squadron to Miramar. I gotta do something here. I, I, I still can't believe it. I gotta give you your dream shot. I'm gonna send you up against the best. You two characters are going to Top Gun. For five weeks, you're gonna fly against the best fighter pilots in the world. You were number two, Cougar was number one. Cougar lost it, turned in his wings. You guys are number one. But you remember one thing. You screw up just this much, you'll be flying a cargo plane full of rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong. Yes, sir! Maverick is a naval aviator who's married to his job and never plays by the rules. Until one day, when his rogue intuition gets his best friend killed is how I've kind of always imagined the 80s trailer narrator would begin to describe Top Gun. If I had to hazard a guess at the movie I've seen more times than any other, Top Gun would without a doubt be my answer. It's 120 minutes of brash, sweaty homoeroticism wrapped in a pretty killer soundtrack, though I wasn't quite aware of all that when I first saw it at the age of four. Top Gun was released on May 16th, 1986, and so this week we're celebrating its 30th anniversary with a more informal review than normal. But Jake, I'm still curious. Top Gun was a war crime for you until this week. So what did your fresh eyes gleam from this experience that mine may never be able to see through the thick haze of nostalgia? Well, uh, okay, so to be honest, uh, I've only seen parts of this a couple times on TV, never enough to stitch it all together. And I did not have extremely high hopes. Really? But I was really, really impressed. I thought this was a really good movie. Nice. That's, I I guess that's not a total surprise. Like it's a, it's a great sort of eighties, uh, you know, it's a, it's a popcorn flick for sure. Uh, but it's, uh, it seems like something that would be in your wheelhouse. So I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, as, as a, 
as a man who loves Armageddon, uh-huh. un, un, unashamedly, unashamedly loves Armageddon, this was uh, this hit a lot of the same uh, notes for me, and, and I mean that in a good way. Visually, it looked amazing. You could follow the action. You could tell what was going on. Uh, it, it was a movie about a bunch of d- dudes going to work. Yeah, no, it's as I said, it's legitimately the movie that I think I've seen more than any other film. Um, it's you know, as a kid. Uh, I wanted to be a naval aviator. I had a little like pilot jumpsuit that I would wear and my, my friends, we would ride around on our bikes. They would be our F-14s and we played Top Gun all the time. You know, uh, I can remember, you know, in like second grade swinging on the swings and jumping off and, uh, you know, playing, you know, Maverick and Goose and Iceman in the, in the playground. So this, when I, when I say this is a formidable, formidable film for me, it, it really legitimately was. Uh, but the thing, the thing that I find interesting is I still, I have a, sort of a different experience each time I watch it, um, which is sort of a great thing for what is ostensibly, you know, a, a Simpson Brockheimer, uh, action film. I mean, Pauline Kael, have you seen Pauline Kael's review of this, this film? Uh, I, ha- I have not. Okay. She, she hated this movie. Um, she basically, and, and she's kind of, I think she's taking a dig at, uh, Tony Scott a little bit because he, I think this is only his second film and he was a commercial director before this. Hmm. And so she basically tears it apart. And, uh, you know, from, from her perspective, it is just a feature length commercial. I mean, well, probably my favorite line from the review is when McGillis is off screen, the movie turns into a shiny homoerotic commercial. Um, she's, she's, taking a lot of, uh, or she's not pulling many punches here. Um, she, she didn't care much for it. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree, or I'm sorry, I don't necessarily disagree with her, uh, her perspective on it, but, um, I think it has a little more depth than she gives it credit for as well. So I didn't, I did not know he was a commercial director, but I find that very interesting because I believe Michael Bay also started off as a commercial director. And if this movie were made today, Michael Bay would probably end up directing it. It, it is that kind of flashy all American uh, flick that he yeah. he loves. Yeah, and I mean it, it makes sense. You look at his. I mean, his brother Ridley Scott also came from commercials. Has always kind of gone back to commercials um, in between uh, making films and and stuff. Uh, it's you know he's from maybe just a little before like David Fincher, who also also came from that. But I think you can you can see it and feel it here in just the way that the the movie is shot and pieced together. Um, she also like compares it to MTV culture and um, says that it's, it, the movie's basically just selling itself and selling its, you know, half naked young men in underwear, you know, running around sweating all the time. There, there was a, there was a lot of that. I mean, I, I know that everybody talks about how gay the volleyball scene in Top Gun is. I, I don't know if it's gay. It's homoerotic. And there's there's a lot of like there is this weird pent up sexual energy between, uh, you know, Iceman and, and Maverick, uh, particularly in some of those locker room scenes where, I, you know, post flight, they're just sweaty and they're in each other's faces. And uh, it's it, and, and that's something that as a kid, I was completely unaware of. Any, any of the subtext. I couldn't tell if that was a modern lens being placed on it, 
But a, a lot, there was a lot of that in there. And uh, e- even the first time Maverick sees Iceman, he's turning around, making eye contact, trying to figure out who the best is. Mm-hmm. But I did not know what he was doing until he said he was trying to figure it out. Because to me, it looked like he was making eyes at Iceman. And I, I think there's sort of a dual meaning there because uh, he says he's trying to figure out who the best of the best is. He's on the one hand looking at Iceman, on the other hand looking at the plaque at the back of the room, which says who the best of the best is. You know, the the best pilot and the best uh, Rio from each uh, from each class, and so it's sort of there. There's a lot of that going on in this film, I think, where there's there's dual meanings to exactly what the conflict is, or um, or that sort of thing. And sometimes it's handled well, sometimes not so much. Like. Um, I remember the last time I watched this, I remember thinking how bad Kelly McGillis was. Mm-hmm. And uh, this time, I think uh, there are there are moments when she's really bad. But the first half of this movie, she's pretty darn strong. Yes. Uh, here, here's the other thing I think about this movie. I think that its target audience is like 15-year-old boys. Uh-huh. Maybe, or or four-year-old boys. Yeah, four, four to four to fifteen year old boys, and I think that the whole movie exists inside that reality. It is not any sort of. I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about being a a, a naval pilot or anything like naval that. Naval aviator. Naval aviator. I'm uh-huh. sorry, but it feels like what I want it to be like. What I would imagine it would be like as a kid, especially what I imagine it would be like. I want to get up. I want to go play volleyball, fly planes talk smack in the locker room and and chase the girl in the in the evening uh-huh. and then ride a motorcycle and look really really cool. <laughs> that is all I want to do and I feel like that is the reality it exists in and you know as 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 film students or students of film we want to look into it and see more and especially culturally now it's really easy to look into it and see all the homoeroticism but I just don't think that's where this movie exists. I think this movie exists you know, for the little kid dream of being a fighter pilot. I don't know. I I think it exists on maybe multiple planes because uh, I think Tony Scott even said as much. He just, he wanted to make, you know, a fun popcorn action movie in the sky, but there there's definitely, I think at least in the screenwriting of this, which carries out, you know, to the screen, um, the dynamic between these characters, you know, these, these are, as it says in like that opening title card, the top 1% of, uh, of pilots that are sent to this school. So there is a cockiness there. There is an inherent, mm-hmm. like these guys know that they are really good at what they do. And there's a drive, you know, because they, they're constantly talking about that edge, like, uh, Cougar loses his edge. Uh, it, he was a damn good pilot, but he, he loses his edge when they have the encounter with the MIG. Um, in that opening scene and, uh, you kind of, you have to have that, you have to have this little place where you can sort of turn off just how dangerous what you're doing is. Aircraft one performs a split S. That's the last thing you should do. The MIG's right on your tail. Freeze there, please. The MIG has you in his gun sight. What were you thinking at this point? You don't have time to think up there. If you think you're dead. Well, that's a big gamble with a $30 million plane, Lieutenant. I think there is a, something nice on the page to these egos. And the, the way the, these- the script is very good to the point where I, 
when I watched it immediately, it felt like a sports movie to me. It didn't uh-huh. feel like a war movie. It didn't feel like an action movie. It felt like a sports movie to the point where you could take all these characters and almost the same script and drop it in a high school football or, or basketball or whatever you want it, where we got to train, we got to practice, we got to get better. There's the, the real deal at the end, the championship game or whatever. Yeah. And then, then the dynamics of that testosterone-driven environment of I want to be the best, no, I want to be the best having to rely on each other eventually. We're all on one team, but there's conflict within it. It was a really good sports movie. It is it is a very good sports movie. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree. And you know, you say that you could tell from the get-go that the script was good. I think there are times when it maybe gets it it's a little too um cute or too too smart. It gets mm-hmm. in the way a little bit when uh characters might not be able to carry it out. But for the most part, uh, the the actors and these are pretty young actors. I mean, Tom Cruise is like twenty four in this movie. Um, they they do a pretty good job. Anthony and or Anthony Anderson, Anthony Edwards, uh, who plays Goose in this, uh, has some really amazing deadpan comedic moments. The the beauty of it is, okay. First off, what what are the spoiler rules? Is this outside of the thirty year spoiler window? Oh yeah, I I figured that we would just go all over spoilers because if you haven't seen Top Gun by now. Uh, I, I don't know who you are. In, until this morning, you were Jacob Graves. Yeah, and, and I'll say that uh, Top Gun, avail- if you haven't seen it, we're about to get into spoilers, available on, uh, I believe, Hulu and Amazon right now. So go watch it. Okay, spoilers. Go ahead, Jake. They make you fall in love with Goose. Yeah. They, they, make, they make Goose the coolest best friend that you want in well i think i think goose is the most relatable like goose goose is sort of you know as as far as the character that you sort of almost want to be i don't necessarily want to be maverick i i sort of want to be goose like if i'm when i was a kid you know playing uh top gun i wanted to be maverick but uh from a like you you know what i mean from from a yeah actual viewer avatar standpoint i think it's sort of goose you have to be really clever to write your script to make the audience do exactly what you're supposed to do, which is fall in love with Goose as a friend or as being relatable or mm-hmm. or, or what have you. And then the direction, the editing, and the acting all work together to make Goose just perfect the entire time he's on screen. And I think they also do a good job of you know, building building him out to a point where – you know, it's a while before you see his wife and child, and that gives another uh, another dimension to it uh, that, you know, it's basically setting up like he's about to die and gives it just another like rounded like this is – these are the people that are going to lose him. You- and it doesn't feel like it's, – it's sort of exposition, but you have a lot of fun doing it. You know, you're singing Great Balls of Fire and going on motorcycle rides and saying take me to bed or lose me forever. And so you don't feel the exposition. It is almost Jar Jar Martin level of setting up this character to die. And once you know Goose is going to die. But I imagine if you were seeing it in 1986 and you went in, that would have been crushing to to see Goose go. Because I knew it happened. Because I think everybody knows it happens. But I knew it was going to happen. Right. And when he hits that, uh, when when he ejects out of there and he hits that, it's painful to watch. Yeah, it, it is, is. It is like a, a, a video on the Internet you didn't mean to hit play on. And and I was like, oh, my God. And that was me knowing it was going to happen. And, well, and then when they, you know, when they're laying there in the water. Th- and this is something that I find amazing because I I sort of get emotional 
watching this movie still like I, and more emotional than I did as a kid, you know, I think initially it was sort of like, Oh my gosh, they, they killed him. But then it became just you. I knew that goose was going to die at 45 minutes in or whatever. Um, it, uh, and I, I know how you're going to feel about this, but it's a lot like in Rocky four where the Russian <laughs> takes down, uh, Apollo Creed and Rocky has to, has to try. It's his motivation. It, it's, it's motivation. Like you wouldn't, wouldn't believe it raises the stakes in something that already has high stakes. Well, and it also gives Maverick because Maverick's a character that you don't necessarily expect to go on a hero's journey of transformation. Um, because he's cocky because he's, uh, you know, he he feels like he already knows who he is, even if he is fighting against that, you know, he's flying up against Duke Mitchell up there, that that whole thing, the backstory of his father and whatnot. But that's that's the moment when he finally realized it's almost like it's almost like he has this addiction to being dangerous and being reckless. And it takes this for him to really uh, reanalyze the way that he approaches uh, his his maneuvers in the sky, essentially. Um, and, it, and it's the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest loss he could possibly have. I actually um, just just thinking about motivations and all that stuff. I thought this movie was going to go a different direction. I thought they go in the spin and Goose dies. And then I thought that Maverick was going to blame Iceman for not pulling off of that MIG earlier. Mm. Mm-hmm. That That's that's what I thought was going to happen. And that was going to just fuel that fire anymore. But Iceman never, e- even though he stayed on that longer than he probably should have, uh, before he, you know, pulled back, never yeah. really catches any of the blame for it. And while there's conflict, there's never like outright hatred between Iceman and Maverick. Well, there is, I mean, I think Iceman is always, I, Iceman's always worried about Maverick for that exact point, um, for that. So, uh, you know, because he sort of wonders if the reason that Cougar bugged out was because, you know, Maverick and Goose are off showboating, mm-hmm. given given the MIG the finger and taking Polaroids, while Cougar really needed him there as a wingman. Um, and so he's sort of he's the conscience of like while Maverick is so cool, he's also dangerous. Like he. <laughs> Yeah, I, direct, I, I, directly I, quoting the movie here, but you know he he is dangerous, and you you know when when you're dealing with thirty three million dollar uh, aircrafts, and and when you're dealing with you know a Rio and a wingman, and you know they're sort of a team, right? Um, you you can't be that roguish. And I I thought Iceman was going to be the bad guy of this movie, um, uh-huh. but in watching it, he. You know, because I knew about the locker room jaw snap and all that stuff, and I knew he was hyper aggressive. Of course, but i I didn't realize that he's he's not that bad in this movie, and he's actually speaking a lot of sense. Um, you could you could almost take Iceman's side in this a little bit, even though Maverick's so likable and all that stuff. Maverick's really dangerous. He's he's going rogue out there. Yeah, I I agree, and I think there's there's something to the script. You know, this is this is a movie that. Uh, while I've seen it a billion times, like it's probably about a, uh, three out of there are 3.5 out of five stars for me on, um, that's, that's where I typically, or that's where I seem to be rating it on Letterboxd. I've, I have logged this film five times since I've been using Letterboxd, if you can believe that. And, wow. um, it's, 
you know, it, it's right on the precipice of, of being great. I think part of it is just, I liked it so much as a kid. I, I wonder if, uh, part of it is just nostalgia, but the more, the more I, you know, kind of get away from, because it's, it's a different viewing experience as an adult than it was as a kid, even if there are like, you know, I, I'm always going to love the one-liners and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and that, that sort of stuff is a, is what I love about movies. Um, but I think the thing that elevates it from like a 3.5 to a, to a four stars out of five for me is, you know, since goose dies, it has that emotional, you know, raising of the stakes. Um, it, it charges the character. It, it just elevates it out of a lot of other, um, kind of popcorn movies. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I, I think that's a good, that's a good point. It, it is at its core, it's a popcorn movie, but it's a popcorn movie that's doing more than just being purely an entertaining popcorn movie. Um, and so what I, what I was trying to get at with, uh, talking about Iceman and, and the script, I think in a sloppier script, Iceman would just be an antagonist. He wouldn't be necessarily a, um, you know, a more well-rounded character who you, you love him, you know, you're, you're kind of jealous of him initially. You think he's kind of cocky. Um, in in a different way than Maverick. A word that I never thought I would use for Top Gun, it, he might be a nuanced character. Like he's played really, really well. Yeah, he he has layers to him. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think Pete Mitchell, you know, the the Maverick character, uh, does as well. He and it's it's all read in Tom Cruise's face uh, most of the time because he outwardly is being. The, you know, trying to be the best of the best, but inwardly he's constantly, he is fighting against, you know, the, uh, idea of, um, you know, who his father was and, and all these other things. And he's, he's kind of posturing. Is it, is it right to call Tom Cruise's acting chops underrated? Because I, I think he's better than people give him credit for. He's I, I more- think, I think, I think you're right. I agree. And and this this role shows that a lot of them do. He acts with a, a lot of intensity that you don't see a lot of other actors uh, uh, act with. Like after after Goose dies and Maverick has to, um, he pulls out um, of one of his attacks and lands, and then he he yells in his uh, I guess yeah he yells, yells at Sunshine. Yeah, he yells at Sunshine. We see a lot of that from Tom Cruise as uh, time goes on, but mm-hmm. he he is as cool as you possibly can be in this movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and Tom Cruise actually reminded me of, of like a of a young Montgomery Cliff. I, I thought he he was that good in this movie. That's he he kind of looks like him too. Honestly, I think that that might have been what got it. Is I'm I'm used to seeing an old Tom Cruise. Yeah. seeing young Tom Cruise was it was he was really good. Yeah, he is. Um, Okay, a, a couple things that I want to touch on. Do, do you have anything specifically that you want to talk about? Uh, the soundtrack. Okay, let's talk about the soundtrack. Were Were you aware Were you aware of the soundtrack before uh, seeing the film? I mean, you had to be aware of at least Danger Zone. I knew I knew I knew Danger Zone was in the movie or associated with the movie or something. Uh huh. Um, I didn't know how prevalent. Uh, my my joke actually when I I started talking to you about this was um, they must have just spent all the money on three songs because <laughs> it feels like three songs covers eighty percent of this movie. Kind of have have you ever listened to the the soundtrack to this movie? No, it's um I so I of course own this on vinyl because I found it in like a three dollar <laughs> bin someplace and like had to have it. And there's several there's I I think there's a few songs that just legitimately aren't in the movie like maybe they. <laughs> Uh, initially 
we're going to use them or whatever. And then there's like the song that's, there's a lot of really eighties dancey stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a song that's on, uh, when we're first introduced to Iceman in that bar, when, you know, the, just before you lost that loving feeling essentially, um, which, you know, you hear maybe, uh, you know, 30 seconds of in, in the movie. And then you hear, you hear the whole thing. It's like, Oh, this is, I really wish I could skip ahead right now. What what that that love and feeling? No 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 no. The I can't. I don't know what the name of the song is. It's oh oh the Iceman. Uh, yeah yeah. It's I want to say it's Gloria Stefan, but I don't think it is. Oh. Um, and then the B side is like a bunch of stuff that I don't think is even in the movie. There's no way it can be because it's just Danger Zone. That love and feeling. Um, take my breath away. Yeah, and and take my breath away. They they kind of it's interesting the way because I. Th- I think that song was written for the movie. I believe I'm almost positive that's that's right. Well, maybe it's maybe it's a different impression for me. You know, hearing it for the first time uh, after or seeing the movie for the first time after having heard the song my whole life. But it is like ten minutes straight of that song. Well, before, but what, before the lyrics come in, and that's what I was going to say is they they you know kind of turn it into this motif before you actually finally hear "Take My." And I think I think you finally hear the lyrics and the uh, you know the the full song when in that like weird blue shadowy <laughs> sex scene, which um, watching as an adult, like there's certain things where it's like ah, that's. It just seems like really awkward sex. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was a, it was kind of a weird scene. There, there's a lot of tongue. There's a whole lot of tongue. Um, <laughs> just, just being arbitrarily used. Uh, but it, it, I just kept going like, when, when is, when is "Take My Breath Away" going to actually happen? Because I am tired of this, this riff repeating over and over and over. Well, and, and that's the thing is, I think they, they try to make it into this motif, but they don't spread out the Charlie and Maverick scenes enough to make it feel like a reprise. It just it is, feels it like is, it is seven minutes of that. And then 30 seconds of sitting on the dock of the bay and then right <laughs> back into it. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll stick a scene in between somewhere and then like they run into each other in the elevator and then it's back. It, uh, it, it felt like the kind of thing where it almost could have started playing two or three times at the same time. Like it, it was just, if they looked back and forth, just start the song again. It, it was uh-huh. everywhere in that movie. Yeah, you you could definitely make some sort of like Tim and Eric y exactly. uh, joke about like it starting up again and again and again. Um I you know, I, I was talking about how impressed I was with Kelly McGillis earlier. Um I do think though, whenever whenever they're doing their like particularly the the scene where uh he rides off on his motorcycle all pissed off and she follows behind. Yes. And uh she has the line about they can see right through me and um, I'm, I'm just afraid to admit that I'm falling for you. Like Mm -hmm. all of that is really bad. I mean, it's bad dialogue on the page, but it's also uh, delivered with zero conviction and sort of undermines the character that she is up until that point. Yeah. The acting's not great. It's kind of weird, but I, I still enjoyed him being an asshole and revving that motorcycle up so he couldn't hear. I and can't hear off. you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's. It was still endearing enough that first part. That I'm like, whatever. This event had to happen at some point, and it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am being forgiving of it just because I liked so much of the other stuff in it. Yeah, okay. I didn't expect I would be the fanboy of the two of us in this in this discussion. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about the visual aesthetic of this movie. Okay, um, what did what did you think? of 
the the look and feel of this film. I was I was very very impressed, especially just right right off the right out of the gate that opening scene for credits. I think it was where they're on the aircraft carrier and it's dusk and everything looks amazing. Uh-huh. That was really cool. And then I also found that um, since it was shot on film, you had film grain in some of those scenes, which reminded me or gave me a bit of nostalgia for when movies looked that way. Now everything is super clean and looks great. And that's really appealing to me, too. But seeing a movie shot on film can be yeah. really it, it it really makes it feel like a movie. It, it was really, really good looking. Yeah, there there is a film aesthetic to it. And I think I mean, part of that, Tony Scott, you know, throughout most of his career uh was very playful with uh, film. I mean, he would sometimes he would shoot, you know, five, six cameras at a time and then intentionally cross process just to see like how the film turns out. And if it, if it was very crunchy and blown out, you know, he would sort of go with it. Um, in this, I think, you know, Paul and Kale really harps on the fact that it feels like a commercial. And I think he does bring a commercial aesthetic to it that I'm not sure how prevalent it really was in Hollywood at the time, you know, using these, uh, you know, there's scenes where like the volleyball scene that, that opening intro, like you mentioned, uh, he's shooting some, uh, at, at least, I don't know, let's say maybe half of it is shot with, uh, high speed cameras, so you have this kind of buttery smooth motion. Um, that, that it, it's a very commercial, you know, feel to it, and I, I think, I think it works for the film. Not, not against it, not in a way that you know feels. Uh, maybe, maybe in 1986, it does just feel sort of jarring in like an MTV music video because you haven't really seen it on on the big screen much. Other than, I mean, I guess Peck and Paw in the 70s was doing um, high speed. Uh, camera stuff. So at least it, it wasn't, you know, not available at all. And she actually, Kale actually liked the wild bunch. So I don't know. Um, was, but- was there, was there high speed when Meg Ryan shows up and hugs goose because it, it felt a little slow-mo, but not much. Maybe I, I would have to go back and watch. And but I, that's what, that's what shocked me. I, Cause I thought that was, and he just mixes slow-mo in, in a lot of little moments. Yeah. Um, he, he mixes it in a, in a way that is not, linear like he he will go from uh real time to slow-mo back to real time and just play it all out as as a scene and not and you know even um adding in you know there's there's foley so that the slow-mo feels like it's real time which is sort of dreamy speaking of meg ryan did you like meg ryan in the movie yes uh i i mean she doesn't have much to do i think she does all right i uh, it did make me wonder watching it this time, like what happened to Meg Ryan? Because this seems like this is sort of before Meg Ryan was Meg Ryan. Right. And then, you know, maybe 10 years later she had a big streak and now she's sort of, I don't know what the last thing was that she was in. I don't she, know. Last she time is, I saw yeah. Her I don't even know of like a bad movie that she was in. She's just not in movies. I, I mean, I think she was in the movie maybe called like rumor has it, or one of those, like one of those that has like Kevin Costner and a bunch of, you know, older stars that our mothers would probably love. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, she's definitely, I, I would like to see more Meg Ryan. I would. Yeah. I, I think, I think she's reached the point where, you know, I would, I would be interested in seeing her have a good, like a, even, even just like a character role in a film. Yeah. Okay. This, this actually is sort of a perfect segue for the last thing that I wanted to talk about. Do you have anything else before, before we get into this? Okay. So there has been for years, sort of rumors that there would be a Top Gun sequel there. I think there have been starts and stops. 
in I, f- trying- I feel like in the film, it, it hinted at the sequel when he's like, I want to go be an instructor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's, and I think Tom Cruise wants to make a Top Gun sequel. Um, but I, I mean, and I don't know what, what the, you know, uh, the problems are with it. It's, I, I would imagine part of it is probably that you make a Top Gun sequel. It can't be CG. It's got to be, you know, real practical, uh, aviation. And that's, that ain't cheap. Um, you want, you want to play a little game of fantasy casting? Oh, I'll play fantasy casting. Sure. Let's, how do you want to do that? We, we can go back and forth. Let's go character by character and we'll both go. So Maverick, who do you have for Maverick? I, w- I would probably like to see Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Maverick. Might be a little older now. Uh, uh-huh. Because one thing we didn't talk about, the characters in this movie are all really young, which is probably accurate. Yeah, and that's that's very – I mean, I, I think I, I did mention that Tom Cruise is like 24 in this. But yeah, they're all – other than – I think Goose seems like he's a little older, but he also has a wife and a child. Right. Um, but yeah, they're they're very young, which I, I like that – like you're saying, that it's probably a little more accurate, a little more authentic. Um, that these are, you know, kind of young kids, uh, you know, early 20s. Um, and so I, I tried to keep that in mind in – most of my casting, but yeah, JGL, he's probably a little old, but, uh, I think he could do well with the, uh, well with the role as well. Um, my, so I've got two picks for Maverick. My first pick is Adam driver. Okay. Um, who also maybe a, a little old, but just that intensity. I can watch, I can watch Adam driver in anything. So, and you need a, you probably would need a good ice man to go toe to toe with him against, against him. But, um, I think he could bring that, sort of uh roguish manic uh nature back to the character that that Tom Cruise did so well. But does Adam Driver have does he have the abs for a volleyball scene? <laughs> I don't know. Uh we've we've never, you know, never seen under Kylo Ren's uh uh big robe. <laughs> okay, so do you have anyone else for Maverick or should we move on to Yeah, I, I had one uh Donald for Maverick. What about what about Donald Glover? D- Donald Glover. Donald Glover damn I, a, I think he can play the serious side of it really well, and he could have that that rogue, mm-hmm. uh, the the Maverick side of Maverick. Yeah, Don, Donald Glover would be really good. Actually, I I hadn't considered him, but that's a really good pick. Um, I think that's actually better than my my second uh, Maverick pick, which was Michael B. Jordan, who I think also would would do quite well. I think Michael B. Jordan would be really good as Maverick. Um, I think I'd rather see Donald though. I, really. <laughs> Like, I, I would too. I think it would be a great, like he would be a great fit for Maverick. Uh huh. I, I think it would be probably more difficult, you know, if you're trying to gather the budget to, to say Donald Glover is going to be our, our, you know, main guy. But, uh, I would love to see him given the shot in this, in this fantasy world. Uh, okay. What about, what about Goose? Who do you got? Uh, see, I, since he's more of the, the comic relief, uh, a little bit and he has to be endearing, I had two picks. Okay. Uh, let's start, let's start with Charlie Day. Do you think Charlie Day could pull this off? Hmm. I don't know about Charlie Day. Like he, cause I love, I love Charlie Day, but I don't know how much range he has. And the thing that I love about Anthony Edwards in this role is just how damn, uh, dry he is and how like he, he offers up a lot of comedy, but he never, um, he never delivers it as a punchline. Yes. And, and so the reason I have two picks, Charlie Day, um, he does best when things are out of control. 
when uh-huh. he's got that really frayed, frantic. So I thought longer about it. What about Jason Sudeikis as Goose? Hmm. So that's that's interesting. I think Sudeikis definitely has the chops and could pull it off because he's he he falls right into that what I what I'm talking about with uh, Edwards in that you know sort of dry delivery. And I think I think he actually could pull off the dramatic side of it as well. That's that's a good pick. My only concern would be maybe he's a little too old. Possibly. Um, I don't know how young he could play. I don't know. Could, could he play 25 still? I'm not sure. I don't I don't think so. But then again, like we said, Goose is does seem to be a little older. He has a wife and a child. So maybe I don't I what was he older or did he just have a mustache? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a very good question. Why were there not more mustaches in this movie? I'm, I'm all really these pilots sure. and maybe mustaches were just out of fashion in the 80s. Maybe these kids were too young to grow them. Maybe so. That's that's a possibility. Who'd you have for Goose? So for my Goose, I've got Alden Ehrenreich. Oh, Alden Ehrenreich. I'm pretty proud of this pick. Like, I I think he's sort of perfect. <sighs> he is. Um, I, I've i wanted to see more of him ever since I saw Hail Caesar. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the, um, the to the Han Solo movie just because he's in it. But Goose seems like it would be a great role for Alden Ehrenreich. Yeah, I, I think it's sort of – he's the right – He's the right age, could play the right age. Uh, he has the right sensibility in uh, that stoic comedy sense. Um, I think he'd be real, really good. Okay, let, let's move on. Who who do you have for Iceman? Uh, see, Ice, Iceman was tough because you, we don't really have a Val Kilmer type right now. I, I couldn't think of, like, who's Val Kilmer these days. Well, and we, we it's it's more we don't have an 80s Val Kilmer type. <laughs> we. Yeah, we, we have a lot of uh, current Val Kilmer types. Now, so I said either Channing Tatum or Liam Hemsworth. I, I think I think they would hit it well enough. I could see that. I think Hemsworth is probably the like safer choice. In in like I don't think you're going to get much. I Tatum. I would like to see more than Hemsworth. I think. I do think um, you have. I I think you have to be a little physically intimidating as Iceman, especially with he he doesn't have a a ton of screen time. He is there a lot, but you mm-hmm. need him. You need him to immediately, you know, using Taipash. He needs to be the A man and the alpha male in the room. Yeah, yeah, and I I think Tatum would be more uh, suited for that than uh, than Hemsworth. I'm, I am I am casting based on jawline alone. <laughs> I mean, he is uh, Tatum is sort of a goofy looking guy, but he just he has a physicality that you can't deny as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for for my Iceman, I've got, and this is maybe playing a little old as well, but uh, Ryan Gosling. Oh, I can. Well, he's not as physically intimidating. I could see Ryan Gosling. I, I could see him as Iceman. I mean, he, he's got a ice cold man. He, I, I think he could, you know, it's all, you know, partially about those eyes and just that stare. And I think, I think he could pull that off pretty well. Um, I, I would like to see the one thing that I worry about is like those locker room confrontations. Um, is he going to be, uh, demonstrative enough to, you know, scare a Donald Glover or, uh, a JGL or Adam driver? Michael yeah, B. Jordan. You, would, you wouldn't want the audience kind of rolling their eyes thinking, what is what is Ryan Gosling trying to do? Yeah, what, what's Baby Goose doing here? Yeah. Um, but that's I, that's that's why I'm, I'm going to give you Tatum on that one. Okay. Okay, what about who do we got next? Uh, you want to do Charlie? Let's do Charlie. You go first. Okay, Charlie, I've got two picks. My my first pick is Mia Vosikovska. Okay. Um, 
She's she's maybe a little young for this role. I actually I thought about going older because she is after all like an astrophysicist. Right. Um and I think like my my initial thought was maybe like a Kate Blanchett. Oh. Um and I I think that would be interesting. That would be but that would be more like fantasy casting. I'm not sure you could get it made right. saying we're going to you know we're going to put Donald Glover <laughs> as love interest with Kate Blanchett. Yeah, that that would be that would be kind of odd. So Mia Vosikovska, I think the the thing is, is I think she can hold her own there. Okay, and uh, so I I would you know I'd like to see her in that role. I I'm never going to turn her down in a in a role. Right. And then I I had a second pick as well, and that that'd be Carrie Mulligan. Um, same Ooh. same sort of thing. I think she could she could handle. I mean, she you know she's sort of a um, she's one of those actresses that you know you see her initially and she's you know sort of this uh small you know little she she seems so uh innocent i guess is the only that that's the wrong description but you know what i mean and then but then she she just has a force to her yes and i can absolutely buy her as the astrophysicist who has the top secret clearance who yeah. fall i can buy i can buy it yeah I think you might win this one, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two two options as well. Okay. Could Elizabeth Olsen play Charlie? Elizabeth Olsen would be she would be good. I I like her. I have not liked her in things lately. Uh, okay. Na- namely, Civil War. Uh, but I would I would watch her in the role. Yeah. All right. I, I saved my eight pick for last. What about Alicia Vikander? Ooh. As Charlie. Yeah, Alicia Vikander. She you know it's uh, in in a. Uh, bracket sort of system. I think it would come down to Lisa Vikander and Carrie Mulligan. Honestly, yeah. uh, those both she and Lisa Vikander has been on a roll lately. She's sort of where Mulligan was maybe four or five years ago. So, and I can buy both of them as love interest for Adam Driver or Donald Glover. I, th- mm-hmm. I think that well, and, and not just fun. not just love interest, but actually, you know, female characters who can go toe to toe with yes uh, with them. So yeah, I I like I like that pick a lot. Okay. Uh, what about Viper and Jester? Viper, I think Viper has to go to Tom Cruise. <sighs> yeah, and I know we're talking. We're almost talking about casting, you know, like a remake. Uh, but we're really talking about casting a sequel, and it wouldn't be Viper. It would be Maverick as the instructor. So you obviously win that. One. Yeah, and I, I mean, even the way like the, the way this movie ends with him saying, uh, you know, I thinking about being an, an instructor. And then, I, I think they were planning on making the second one and it never happened. Yeah, maybe. Reason. And, you know, technically Top Gun doesn't exist anymore. So when the sequel happens, well, I, I don't know what they're I. Well, I think it was merged with another uh, naval flight school sort of thing. OK, so do you do you have an alternate for Viper? If if Tom Cruise is busy making Mission Impossible nine and a half, <laughs> okay. then I, I would say Gary Oldman could come in and be Viper. Mm, mm-hmm. I, I could see that Gary Oldman is sort of perfect for particularly for reprising Tom Skerritt's gravitas. Yes. Because um, he's kind of he, he kind of has that, uh, you know, football coach, baseball coach thing to mm-hmm. him where you're just scared of him because, you know, he has authority. He doesn't have to say anything. I don't think we talked about Tom Skerritt enough. His his he did a fantastic job in this movie. He is great in every scene. Okay, I, I'm going to ask you something that I I asked on Twitter and Facebook uh, maybe a couple weeks ago. Um, when you think Tom Skerritt, what's the second thing that you think of? <laughs> Other than Alien, is that what you're asking? Well, so that's that's sort of where the question came from. I assume that uh, 
pretty much anyone, if you think of Tom Skerritt, either the first thing is Top Gun or Alien, depending on who you are. Yeah. Um, But then he's been in a ton of stuff, but he's not necessarily super well known for anything else. No, I actually looked at his IMDb today and I want to go watch the made for TV high noon starring, uh, starring Tom Skerritt. Really? Okay. But, but legitimately like when you hear the name Tom Skerritt, what's the second thing? What is the first thing you think of alien? First thing was alien. And the second thing is top gun, even not having seen it. I knew it was. Okay. Okay. See my, my first is top gun. Naturally. My second Mm -hmm. thing is Harold and Maude. Who is he in Harold and Maude? Because I love Harold and Maude. He's just, he's just the, like, uh, highway cop. Like, he pulls that them him? over. That's him. And he's, <laughs> like, it's literally like a two-minute scene. But for some reason, I think it was just, like, the first time I saw that movie, I was so happy to see Tom Skerritt show up. That, you, like, you'd know that if I would have realized that was Tom Skerritt, then my recommendation for this week would have been Harold and Maude. Because that <laughs> is one of my absolute favorite films. Yeah. So, so yeah, there, there's a little, there's a little uh, as Hunter would say, knowledge bomb for you. Tom Skerritt is the motorcycle cop in Harold and Maude. Wow. Uh, okay. So, Jester. Who do you got for Jester? I, I didn't know for Jester. Uh, so, I, pick, I picked Woody Harrelson. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting pick that also interesting to go along with, with mine. Like I think Woody Harrelson could, because the thing about Jester is he's sort of an asshole. Um, yes. and you, he's a, a character as an instructor that you never really, you never really know what's going on behind his, you know, behind his eyes. There's right. And, and I, I can, with his accent and the way that he talks, I could see him being like a flight instructor at one of these schools. I, I, I just see him in that sort of a role. I think he could pull it off. No, I, I think that's a good pick. I, 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 the reason I say it's an interesting pick is because I went with uh, McConaughey, um, <laughs> which I think naturally Harrelson is probably the, uh, the go-to of those two. The the reason I picked McConaughey though is because I would like to see him in a role like that. I I think he I think he has the chops to pull it off, and so to see him play uh, a more you know uh, mean, mysterious, dark sort of sort of dude uh, would would be interesting. I, I, it's just got, it's just got to be somebody from a true detective. My, my other, my other <laughs> choice was Vince Vaughn. I'm kidding. I, you go Vince Vaughn. I'm definitely going to go Colin Farrell above Vince. Oh, Vaughn. you're going to win that one, man. You're going to win that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, last question. Um, what would Top Gun be without a soundtrack? Oh, the most important character in the film. The most important character in the film. The, the three songs that play over and over again. Um, so do you, do you have any picks for soundtrack? Ooh, well, right off the bat, I I would say, uh, so the band Someone Still Loves You, Boris Yeltsin, uh, the lead singer, uh, Philip Dickey, has a side project, Dragon N3, who, Uh granted, has covered Danger Zone, but they are... Let me tell you you a little something, Jake. Uh, Listeners, you're going to be hearing, you'll probably hear Danger Zone at the beginning of this episode, and then when we go to break uh, from Dragon N3, so enjoy that. Dragon N3 is 80s soundtrack pop that is essentially mm-hmm. what what they do they've only done one ep that i know of and it is just fantastic top to bottom and i think top gun and that big 80s sound go hand in hand and you can't you can't have one without the other yeah that, i i think that's a good pick if you want to go like that uh that that direction you know a little more throwback mm-hmm. um and and i have i've got two picks here i've got one that's sort of in that direction as well. So I'll go ahead and, and mention it. Uh, I went hot chip in, in that, uh, I, I can see hot chip doing that, which would be, you know, it'd be a little dancey. It would be a little throwback. Um, it would be 
if if nothing else, it would be an interesting soundtrack. I, I feel like they're a student enough of culture to uh, make something that is really good for a Top Gun sequel. Yeah, yeah. So and and then I have uh, I have a rock pick as well. And uh, I do too. <laughs> okay, let me. I'm going to give mine because I think yours is a little better than mine. Okay. Um, and so mine, mine's Foo Fighters, which nothing against the Foo Fighters, but it just seems like the go-to generic, like, oh, you got to have a rock band do a danger zone sort of thing. Obviously, well, it's going to be the Foo Fighters. Is uh, is it is it going to use Learn to Fly? Is that going to be in the soundtrack? <sighs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> okay, so my thought process on mine, uh, Kenny Loggins was kind of past his prime and this uh, revived his career. Is that correct? I, I mean, I, I don't know if past his prime is right, but yeah, I mean, Loggins and Messina. We're out of, out of the limelight. How about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Loggins, Loggins and Messina was in the 70s. Um, and so this is, this is after that he's, I think he's still around, but, uh, maybe not as prevalent as, uh, he had been, you know, the decade before. Perfect. Because I think a great, great band that could pull this off is the killers. Hmm. They very, very popular, uh, 10 years ago or so. Uh And and they can have that, that synthy sound and they are fantastic at writing big, big songs. Yeah, that, that's a that's a pretty good pick. You know, they have that sort of synthy sound, that organ sound that uh, you know could feel throwback, but also modern. Um, I do think maybe the Killers of ten years ago may have been a little more apt for this, but maybe you know maybe that could be like you're saying, maybe that could be their uh, sort of comeback resurgence a little bit. So I I like that pick. I I feel like Brandon Flowers probably still has those presets on his keyboard. Uh-huh. <laughs> on his disco ball plated Eagles claw keyboard that he has. Uh, I think, I think, I think he, I think they can do it. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's hope he has that. And you know, I'm for soundtrack. I think I'm going to give it to you for, for actually both of your picks. Um, either, either end of that. Uh, because I, I would like to see, uh, I would like to see a good killers album again. And, uh, that sort of wraps us up for, uh, our stunt casting, our, our fantasy casting, unless you, do you have anything else? I think that's uh think that's it for me, but you definitely won the goose battle because now I just want to see Alden Ehrenreich in something. I know. I do too. Uh maybe maybe it can be the Top Gun TV series. So, Chris, one time my my brother sent me a text and asked me what was the best song about getting drunk on a plane? And I think he was referencing a new country song about drunk on a plane. Uh-huh. And I, uh, I wasn't sure this was a or I wasn't aware this was a subgenre. Uh, apparently, uh, he thought that was the only song, but he doesn't know about my love for Hank Williams Jr. And obviously, High and Pressurized is the best song about getting <laughs> drunk on a plane. So if, if you were going to crack open a beer, Chris, uh, or, or tell our listeners to, to crack open a beer for this, how would you tell them to get High and Pressurized? <laughs> uh, okay, I think this pick is going to pair pretty nicely with the bravado of Top Gun. Uh, it comes from Coop Aleworks in Oklahoma City, and it is the F5 IPA. Now, the name of this beer is an homage to the F scale, which if you're from Oklahoma, you're probably familiar with. Uh, it's used to rate the intensity of tornadoes, uh, with F5 being the highest on that scale. And the significance of that is that this is a beer that is pushing the envelope of bitterness. It has an IBU of 100, which is essentially the height of uh, what you can taste in bitterness. Uh, the the key here, though, is that it's a it's an extremely bitter beer, but uh, with with that you know those West Coast hops uh, that it has. But 
uh, it's fairly well balanced. And, uh, you know, initially the taste was a little too much for me the first time I had it, uh, much like, uh, you know, visually and aesthetically for Pauline Kale, Top Gun was <laughs> way too much. Uh, but I've really grown to love it. It's especially great for a great beer for a hot summer day. Uh, so I think it, you know, might be perfect for cooling off after a long, hot uh, doubles volleyball sesh, if you will. Uh, so go ballistic with your taste buds and uh, try an F5 from Coop Aleworks. Sounds, sounds great. Top Gun is currently available on video cassette and Laserdisc and streaming on Amazon Prime and Hulu. Or catch it on the big screen at Cinemark Theaters Nationwide, Sunday, May 22nd and Wednesday, May 25th. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail, or just your best locker room jaw snap at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around for our really rad recommendations, coming up next. All right, Jake, recommendation time once again. Uh, what do you got for us today? It, it better be something pretty dangerous. Oh, pretty dangerous? Yeah. Well, I actually have two recommendations. Uh, if, if you just hate having your feet on the ground and you, you, you like that feeling of being up in the sky, uh, why don't you watch Galaxy Quest? Oh, that, that's a really, really good pick. Yeah, it, it doesn't relate too much to this, but um, it was made in 1999, uh, starring Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman who are all fantastic in this. Mm -hmm. And I had never seen it. I was just surfing through Netflix, and I said, I guess I'll watch this. And much like Top Gun, I was extremely, extremely impressed. So when did you first see this? Galaxy Quest? About a month and a half ago. Really? Yeah. Had okay. never seen it, but I had never watched... Uh, I, I was never a Star Trek fan until a couple of years ago. Okay. And, and so I started watching Star Trek, the original series, watched the new movies, and... I I was like, yeah, sure, I'll watch Galaxy Quest. And I, I was top to bottom impressed. I understand now why it was ba it, it was uh, voted the fifth best Star Trek film. <laughs> no, Galaxy Quest, a, I think it's one of those that you could maybe describe as a beloved film, like not uh, not across the board, like super well known, but people who um, have it, it has its fan base out there and rightly so, I think. It, it much like Top Gun, it could have uh, just played in its genre a little more and been utterly forgettable, but it reaches. It's very good. The script's very good. The acting's good, and uh, and Galaxy Quest pulls at the heartstrings a little bit too. Yeah, it does. That's a that's a good pick. You said if you uh, don't want to keep your feet on the ground, so do you have do you have another pick for us? Uh, yes, if if you have a fear of flying, but you love the the sports film aspect. Uh -huh. I just um, 
Tom Cruise riding the motorcycle and then playing in all these planes felt a little bit like it could have been like a motocross movie. Okay. So I'm going to recommend Motocrossed, the Disney Channel original movie <laughs> from 2001. <laughs> uh, I, it's by far the best motocross film. You may be thinking, uh, what are some other motocross films? Well, Steve Boyum, uh, IMDb tells me, directed Motocrossed. And then he also directed 2005 Supercross. Starring the same two actors. Uh, is it a sequel? It, it looks to be unrelated, and I uh, for, <laughs> I haven't seen it. I, I did see Motocross uh, as, as a kid a couple times. But it looks like he just brought in Riley Smith and Elena Austin from Motocross, probably uh, maybe just for fun. I'm not really sure. Well, I wonder if it's a matter of there just aren't many actors out there who can act what like are, are dirt bikes uh the 21st century version of horses maybe maybe so i'm not sure <laughs> but maybe you just wanted to get those actors in on on a blockbuster like supercross which grossed 3.1 million domestic i would just like to point out that in your notes here for recommendations it says 2001 hyphen parenthetical disney channel original movie i was really hoping you were going to uh recommend a Disney Channel original remake of Stanley Kubrick's 2001. I would watch a 2001 uh, Disney Channel original movie remake. I, it, I know you would. But only if it only if it could star Shia LaBeouf in in 1999. <laughs> that's a that, that's a solid pick. Uh, okay, so my recommendation for this week is actually not related to uh, our review of Top Gun and all. It's it's related to our next review in a couple weeks of Yorgo Lanthimos's uh, the Lobster. Uh, Yorgos Lanthimos is a Greek director. Uh, Lobster is his first English language film. And Dogtooth is a film that uh, came out in 2009, I think maybe 2010 in the US. Um, and it's I've actually recommended this before as a uh, Friday featured flick. Um, it's a movie that I think the less you know about going in, um, the better and crazier it is. So I'm not going to describe too much beyond it is a very enigmatic sort of sort of story. Very, very weird, uh, very meticulously crafted as well. Um, also a very oddly beautiful movie. It's um, everything looks a little bleak and washed out, but uh, in a, in a very, it's, it's almost as if like, Wes Anderson tried to make something that felt sort of Tim Burdeny in a visual way. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's very, it's very well composed, but it's very uh, sort of bland and dark. He he does these things where uh, just the placement of his camera is beautiful. He's you know sort of shorting people's faces, cutting off heads, doing these things that are very just make you uneasy as an audience member, which is sort of what this entire movie is about. Um, so Dogtooth, it's currently available for free on Hulu with ads, or if you have Hulu Plus, uh, you can stream it there as well. Also, if you are a member of Fandor, um, it's there. And then to rent in all the usual places. Is it not available on Netflix anymore? It's not available on Netflix anymore, no. Which is which is funny because the thing I was going to say is I haven't seen Dogtooth, but it's up there with Blue is the Warmest Color and The Diving <laughs> Bell and the Butterfly for titles I have had in my queue the longest on Netflix. <laughs> Diving the Bell and the Butterfly, if that's still on Netflix, definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, that's a really fantastic movie. And then check it out and then check out uh, if you can find behind the scenes stuff on like YouTube of how they how they pulled off. There's a lot of practical effects in that that are just kind of astounding. Hmm. Uh, so where are your uh, 
where are your picks available? Uh, Galaxy Quest is available to stream on Netflix, and Motocross is available to rent on YouTube, but it will be part of the Disney Channel original movie Memorial Day Marathon, <laughs> honoring the 100th uh, Disney, uh, DCOM, as they're called online, I found out when researching. Okay. Disney Channel original movie, Adventures in Babysitting. Wow. You know, is uh, I got a question for you. Is there a Disney Channel original movie cinematic universe? Uh, I, I can only hope so. I mean, you've, um, you've seen enough of these. Is there ever any crossover between them? Not, not that I can remember. Some of them are in the same in the same universe, but only because they're sequels. But I, I don't think like Xenon goes and visits Halloween Town. <laughs> I don't think that happens. They, that's probably the next phase. That's probably what they're going to introduce with this hundredth or hundredth and first or whatever uh, yes. picture. So you, so you can catch Motocross at four thirty-five p.m. on Sunday, May 29th on the Disney Channel. And you can catch reviews of all 100 Disney Channel films in our upcoming podcast, Disney Channel Movies Start at Midnight. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been probably the longest short rounds episode ever. Um, but that's finally a wrap for this episode of War Starts at Midnight. Uh, check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, weekly movie recommendations, and more. You can say hi to Hunter on Facebook or me on Twitter and Instagram at WSAMPod. And if you enjoy the show, rate us, review us, or subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. And if you're the trolling type who thinks our egos are writing checks our bodies can't cash, tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or, if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Shout out to Dragon Inn 3 for music in this week's show. Pay what you want for their EP, Ghoul School, at dragonin3.bandcamp.com. Join us in another fortnight as Hunter and I welcome Collider.com news editor Adam Chitwood to discuss Yorgos Lanthimos' English-language debut starring Colin Farrell, Rachel Weisz, and John C. Riley, The Lobster. Thanks for listening, folks. Madman out.